0: each time something new is tried for better or worse. What new empires might rise in the future, and how shall they govern themselves? So today we will be looking at government types of the future, surveying everything from how old styles of government, like feudal kingdoms, might arise again on space colonies, to how democracies might handle interstellar colonies or voting by citizens who were transhuman or artificial intelligence, or uplifted organisms like human intelligent animals, We will also consider some entirely new governmental types we have not seen before, as well as many ways in which systems we have seen before might emerge again with new flavors under new technologies. This is going to be a rather long episode so now is probably a great time to grab a drink and a snack, and if you enjoyed today's episode, please let our wise and mighty overlords know this by hitting the like and subscribe buttons. In fact it's going to be long enough that we will be carrying this episode into next week too. Where we'll examine the concept of nomadic fleet-based civilizations and government types like the Navarchy, which is one run by captains and admirals. There are a ton of archies and aucracies incidentally, and I'll mention many of the more obscure ones as we go through today, but we'll focus most on democracy. We will try to do this topic today with fun and as food for thought, and without placing any special favor for a given system or bias against it, though that is easier said than done, I'm a big fan of democracy, as I'd imagine is most of the audience, and indeed my other professional hat outside of the channel is overseeing elections for my region of Ohio. This does not necessarily mean it's the best form of government or its implementation is always ideal, and to quote Churchill quoting someone else, democracy is the worst form of government, except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. When discussing types of governments, it's important to remember that they are usually mixed, creating a huge array of possible governing systems. The US, for example, is a democracy, ruled by the majority, and also a constitutional republic, but is also a cry ruled by judges, the judiciary being a co-equal branch of the government. It is also a demarchy, ruled by random selection or sortition, as this is how we select our juries that those judges essentially referee to decide guilt and innocence. And those are just the official forms. Any given nation or group might have several unofficial de facto forms of government. For instance the US is also a gerontocracy, ruled by the elderly, as most of our elected leaders are older than the average citizen, even discounting those who are deemed too young to vote, and of those who choose to vote it is disproportionately on the old side. We are also a plutocracy, ruled by the wealthy, in that we generally tend to elect folks whose income and assets are well above the average, And of course wealth can often purchase influence. We are also a meritocracy, ruled by some merit, skill, or talent. These are not the official forms of government but are nonetheless in play. Their specific nature and degree can also vary and mutate over time. As an example, an official gerontocracy would be ruled by the oldest specifically, like tribal elders where the seven oldest people made up the tribal council. A gerontocratic oligarchy, ruled by a small group, in this case an old one, And such a thing might develop over time a rule where it was the seven oldest minus anyone who was suffering senility or extreme poor health, or mutate to limit selection from the oldest who had also done something noteworthy and of merit, a gerontocratic meritocracy. A common complaint about gerontocracies is the senility issue, and also the vigor issue, that as one ages you are thought by many to lose a certain amount of fire in the belly, and something like radical life extension technology might have a big impact on that and an unpredictable one too. If you've got folks who are 300 years old and have the mental and physical vigor of a 30-year-old, your civilization might be far more likely to tip toward being a gerontocracy. Of course, another concern often raised about such an approach is that it might be prone to being stagnant and rejecting change and lacking upward mobility for the young. This might be even worse in such cases, as while no one is going to hold the exact same few in their youth as they do at age 300, it does seem reasonable to wonder if your Leo is an electorate, or vastly older on average than now, if change might be a rather slow thing. This extended lifespan concept takes an extra flavor on in space colonization contexts, especially in which you're building space habitats not just doming and terraforming other planets, because on Earth there is a fixed amount of land that is not mobile, you can't just make more land or pick up a country and move it. Well, you can, but it takes a lot of technology and effort. See the Earth 2.0 series for examples. In the case of space habitats you can, because you can build a new O'Neill Cylinder, something with an internal land area on par with the tip a typical county or very small country, and you can also move the thing around if you don't like your neighbors. These two things, life extension and the ability to make and move habitats, might have truly profound effects on how we run things in the future and we'll explore that more in a bit. However, another popular notion about how we might run things in the future is that we would not, that an artificial intelligence would. This would be an example of an autocracy, absolute rule by a single person, or in this case an AI, or possibly an anocracy, a variation where federal or national power rests with an autocrat. But the lower levels below are democratic, the usual example being a benevolent dictator who lets most issues be handled locally and democratically, in this case the benevolent dictator presumably being an AI. And indeed this notion could be somewhat parallel to a constitutional system, where that constitution places limits on the government's powers, such as an AI who specifically had emergency powers or oversight to ensure a core constitution of rights was held to. In the US that's nominally one of the jobs of the judicial branch, and it's often been suggested we might use artificial intelligence in this role as objective judges, an AI crytarchy. I feel obliged to mention though that this notion in science fiction, that a machine intelligence is inherently objective, much like the other common notion that an AI could not lie, is not really based on anything other than an assumption they would be inherently logical. We have no reason to assume that other than because they function on logical processes, except so do humans and animals our internal circuitry just happens to be far more complex than old-style computers were, newer stuff is way more complex and patchy, and tends to exhibit a lot of the same tendencies we see in a meat mind. One doing decision-making is also going to need a lot of initial assumptions programmed in that will occasionally come into conflict, so there's no particular reason to assume an AI would be any more rational than you or I, assuming those compartmentalized assumptions of core ethics don't drive it completely insane. Nonetheless, computers and artificial intelligence will doubtless play a role in governance in the future, and of course already do. Indeed most modern legislative bodies have their votes tallied by a computer, with the official swiping ID cards to vote yay or nay or abstain. This brings up a possible example of proportional allocation of votes that wasn't really viable in the past. In a representative democracy or republic, a given area has a person who votes for them, And has a single vote so we generally try to keep those districts about the same size. Usually when drawing up those districts, mindful that people often move between census counts anyway, there's a small percentage of variation allowed in district size. An average district might be 760,000 people nationally, about what it was for the US last census, but a given state might have 13.2 times that number and have to allocate it to around 13 representatives. So the districts can't be 760,000 people, But we need to average 772,000, and given districts might be a few percent higher or lower than that, in an attempt to create a map that follows existing subdivision borders, counties and city borders. We generally take the attitude that that is good enough, as it means no legislature's vote is generally more than a few percent more or less powerful than another's, and again populations are fluid anyway. This of course creates a lot of districting and gerrymandering issues, and one alternative is just to set a wider threshold, draw the maps up entirely with existing subdivision borders in mind, and just say, Congressman X's district currently has 1.05 times the normal district size, so X has 1.05 votes in the legislature. And you only merge or divide districts when one has reached a much wider threshold like 50% above or below the norm. This might be more attractive down the road too, as while population divisions like metropolitan regions do shift a lot over even a decade, Something like an O'Neill Cylinder space habitat is a pretty set-sized object that isn't going to want chunks of it cut up between multiple districts probably. Of course they can also move too, as a space station is also a spaceship, but we'll come back to that later. Similarly, some places have more than one representative per district, states have two senators for instance, and a place might decide it was going to have a large district five times the normal size and give the top five vote-getters in an election each one vote or alternatively, each a vote proportional to how many votes they picked up. Needless to say, things like real-time tracking of your population, as opposed to counting heads every decade, might alter this more, not just in giving a much more precise and up-to-date constantly changing district vote total, but also conceivably allowing partial dual citizenship. In Ohio for instance, we've got what we call snowboards, usually elderly folks who downsize their house after their kids grew up, and spend their summers here and migrate south for the winter months. You can only claim one residence for voting in the US and vote in that place only, meaning you can't vote in the elections for your summer and winter address, nor can you vote on the property taxes for some town in which you do not live but your family business is at and pays those taxes, or on the income tax of the city you work in and pay taxes in if you reside elsewhere. There's a strong argument for the one-person, one-place, one-vote approach, but probably its biggest support is sheer practicality. In a pre-computer age, and one which votes are anonymous too, it is a huge hassle to try to give a person 0.75 votes in their hometown and 0.25 votes in the town where they spend their winters or work at. If a computer is handling all the specifics, tracking folks' location and issuing ballots, and it is trusted to be safe, secret, and secure, you could conceivably let people pull ballots for multiple residences, which would just adjust in a vote to the amount of time they spent in that place. Similarly, you might let folks divide their vote if for instance in a five-way race for two available positions, as we often do for at-large councils like villages and school boards, and they had two candidates they liked, instead of telling them they could vote for two people equally, they could vote for one 120% and another 80% of their 200% total vote, or maybe vote 100% for their favorite and 60-40 for two others they thought would be good. Or conceivably gave folks more than exactly one vote, The default notion of democracy is that everyone, or at least everyone allowed to vote, has one vote as valuable as anybody else's, sometimes called egalitarian democracy, which honors the notion that we all have an equal say, but often rubs the wrong way for me folks who are being told their vote is no more valuable than their next door neighbor who they consider an absolute moron. This always brings up the idea of who is entitled to vote, with the prevailing view these days generally being everyone is, simply by being an adult of sound mind, though often removing folks for something like committing a felony on the grounds they've proven themselves a bad citizen. Determining who is a good citizen obviously gets tricky, as does figuring out who gets to do the determining. In Robert Highland's classic novel Starship Troopers, we're presented with a society where anyone could join the military or civil service and could not be denied some position there, but only those who had completed a service got a vote, or franchise. This raises the issue of merit-based voting amounts. I've heard folks suggest various schemes for unequal voting down the years that use parallel notions too, like everyone got a vote when they turned 18 but got another when they turned 30, another at 40, another at 50 and so on, or got an extra vote for certain meritorious behavior, like completing 100 hours of community service per year, or serving in the civil service or defense force, or that everyone got 1.0 votes if they had an IQ of 100, but a person with an IQ of 131 got 1.31 votes. And again, we are not interested today in saying what is or isn't fair, just discussing some scenarios. Now I wouldn't think we'd employ such a system in the future in dealing with regular modern-day humans across the board. But it might get more strained if you had cyborgs, genetically engineered geniuses, transhuman citizens, uplifted animals, or superintelligent AI, or subintelligent AI for that matter, who folks wanted to give some say but not a whole vote. Incidentally, a system of government ruled by the smartest or geniuses is a geneocracy and would be a subtype of meritocracy where the only relevant merit was intelligence, or IQ anyway which is not necessarily the same thing. Something like that might be a more of a pressing issue if we saw the emergence of a lot of hive minds or more distributed or networked intelligences. Do twenty people in a hive mind get one vote, or twenty votes? Or even 21, given that certain types of networked intelligence would maintain a lot of individuality, but potentially have those 20 folks still individual, while there was a distinct hive mind with its own distinctive personality and opinions, which might not exactly match each and all of its component members. So, too, as we looked at in the hive minds episode, in a more loose network, a person might be part of multiple hive minds, a variation of dual citizenship in a way. Or a more integrated form of group intelligence compared to say, being a member of a bunch of different clubs and groups, like many of us are, and which each has its own focus and personality, which often changes as members join or leave, just a lot more literal in this case. This also raises an interesting approach to representative government too, that a society big on mental augmentation might use, which is one where everyone is networked and their representative isn't elected but is some hive mind running on a tiny portion of every voter's brains in a cloud, and it has its own distinct mind built upon its citizens' background thoughts and opinions. Alternatively, in a sufficiently smart society, where the average citizen was so mentally augmented they could perfectly recall every moment of their life, read textbooks and absorb them in minutes, and the average person was both 400 years old and had a 400 IQ, there might be no need for representation at all. No need for someone to have the full-time job of digging into policy and voting on behalf of everyone who doesn't have the time for that. In this setup, everything is either direct vote on all policy decisions, or uses sortition and demarchy, which is where you randomly select a group from the qualified pool to research the matter and make a decision. This is usually a draft from all eligible citizens, as we do with a jury, but sometimes something more specialized like a selection from doctors to address a medical issue, or civil engineers to decide roads and infrastructure, meritocratic demarchy. Something like the hive mind legislature of a moment ago, or the AI autocracy from earlier, might simply emerge on its own, simply by a legislator opting to poll people constantly and deciding to be a perfect weather vane, always voting as their district's majority preferred on every issue, and that might get rather elaborate or official over time. Or it could happen in the shadows, some powerful supermind hiding out that tampered with the vote, or people's minds via propaganda or direct mental alteration. A secret government, called a cryptarchy, is often in place in fiction, and indeed is prominent in Isaac Asimov's Foundation series. There we have the official democratic government, but also the hidden Second Foundation, a meritocratic oligarchic cryptarchy composed of psychologists who help predict and shape the future. It is also openly a prophetocracy, ruled by a prophet, in the form of Harry Selden, the psychohistorian who founded both foundations, and appears centuries later as a hologram recording, predicting events. The notion of various benevolent dictators, oligarchs, or seers, able to see or calculate a better future is a popular one in sci-fi too, you can see our episode on psychohistory for why this is easier said than done. But we can't expect a lot of computer modeling of future trends to remain and grow in its use and influence in decision making in the future, though something fiction overlooks is that even dictators and oligarchs have power bases they need to keep the support of, they just accomplish it in a much less systematic and non-violent way than via democratic elections. We do have a concept though called a singleton, which is an individual entity or group that simply has an unbeatable control over a civilization. So that no negotiation or appeasement is needed for rule, inside or out of its realm. Examples like accurate forecasting or mind control capability, or simply an AI with huge thinking and manufacturing capability, might be examples of that type of autocracy. It is a popular notion in sci-fi that we will blow up all of our computers or go more primitive in their use, like with the Butlerian Jihad in Frank Herbert's Dune series, and we looked at some such scenarios in our episode After AI, In that series, humanity had gone back to a more fetal period and it is a popular trope in science fiction, especially the space opera genre, that we might see a return of knights and barons and dukes and kings or them by some other name. They probably would emerge by some other name too, but it does not really matter, titles shift with time and place and we have tons of them from our history. In the Foundation series for instance, the official leader of the Foundation is the Mayor, dating back to when it was a single small city on a remote and new world, but the title is kept even when the Foundation is an empire spanning a million worlds and trillions of people, and a lot of our titles either meant something very different originally, or were literally someone's name like Caesar and the Tsars, Tsars and Kaisars. Titles vary and rarely describe the position well. The big bad guy of the original Foundation trilogy, the Mule, is a mind-controlling autocrat who styles himself for Citizen, and would be an example of an anocracy, in that he only controls things at the top by mind controlling existing leaders or very skilled individuals he then promotes. You could see a lot of new titles that tended to be hereditary, like the CEO of a company that built and maintained a space habitat effectively becoming a title equivalent to Baron or Count, or on the flip side we might just bring those titles back, and for that matter they are hardly gone, There were several hundred hereditary barons in the UK alone in modern times. And I'd hardly be surprised if the peerage still exists in a couple of centuries and we started building space habitats. If the UK bankrolled a bunch of O'Neill Cylinders and the King or Queen of England started parceling bits of those into baronies and dukedoms, not only might that stick around but it might catch on too, with owners or elected leaders of those not of the UK opting for that title. You will need subdivision for any large nation after all. Where I am at we have counties, we just run it by a board of three elected commissioners, who are titled Commissioner, not Count. The title is elected, not hereditary, but then not all titles are hereditary now or in the past. Whoever is running the show on a cylinder habitat, elected or by dint of owning the thing, might be in power for a very long time. You could get the owner or majority shareholder passing on to a descendant or kin, but if you got longevity treatments in play, they might be waiting a very long time, and on their passing a millennium later, they might have hundreds of children and hundreds of thousands of living direct descendants squabbling over the inheritance. Possibly a more plausible scenario, essentially in a more post scarcity and life extension capable civilization, is that someone might play a big role in founding a habitat and end up as its first leader and just keep getting re elected over and over again, either in a ceremonial role or as a flat out autocrat, elected or not. After all, any colony founded by a handful of people who just don't die off as time goes by is going to have their stamp on everything, even ignoring that the majority of the population is going to be related to them by blood or marriage and the rest by association. If you go to some interstellar colony founded by a thousand colonists a thousand years later, every one of those millions or billions of people is going to be able to claim direct descent from every founder who actually had a family, and if they are still around their influence is going to be enormous as is their experience, so you might have the single same ruler over and over again or it passing around between a handful of them because of term limits. And that's not even considering the possibility that the founder of a colony could just clone themselves a thousand times, or create their own subservient species whom the founder can lord over. Term limits is another thing you probably want to be considering if your civilization has radical life extension, if you're worried about someone becoming an institution all on their own, but it doesn't ensure they're really out of power. You might just end up with their understudy, their kid or someone they mentored, as the ruler, and even if they were not a puppet of that other person, who might have generally wanted to retire, it's pretty likely they and others would be banging at their door for advice, or that they might reemerge from retirement during crises. We tend to name places after their founders or some prominent person, and it might be kind of awkward to run against John Smith, president of the John Smith Space Habitat. Which could easily lead to a constant youth migration too, If you're building new wards and folks living on them tend to live for centuries or longer, you need new habitats for their kids unless you are engaging in population control, but also so there's some room for upward mobility and you're not 200 years old before your boss finally thinks you're experienced enough to be assistant manager at the gas station. Outward mobility and migration is likely to be tied to a lack of upward mobility, as if some colony has an average citizen age of 400, and the same dozen folks have pretty much been running the show for centuries, they're pretty hard to unseat. More so for a small colony like a Cylinder Habitat, because when you start complaining about the leader to younger folks, there's a good chance one of them is going to say, hey man, that's my great-grandma you're insulting, she is not a tyrant, and she makes the best chocolate chip cookies too. Which does raise the issue of what anyone is actually governing. Older societies tend to be run on custom as much as law, And it is entirely possible that through practice and wisdom we might get a fairly perfected system of civil rights and administration that is mostly static and heavily automated. Post-scarcity societies are not necessarily utopian, let alone genuinely perfect, but they probably would tend to be pretty content and likely low on crime too, and maybe way better at rehabilitation and early prevention of crime or discontent. That being the case, where everyone is monstrously wealthy and long-lived and educated compared to nowadays, they might not have much to actually govern. Their titular leader might be mostly ceremonial and mostly doing jobs like cutting ribbons or judging contests for the best chocolate chip cookies, particularly if the entire habitat's maintenance and administration is mostly being done by some AI bordering on being a genus loci, or spirit of the place, whose drones handle pretty much everything. We see something like that with the Orbital Minds in Ian e. Banks' Culture series, such an AI might be the de facto leader, or even just given the honorary title of First Citizen if it had basically been toiling in the background for centuries, playing groundskeeper and maybe even teacher and mentor to countless generations. We also need to keep in mind that governments come in all sizes and what is a government can be kind of hazy. An awful lot of universities are home to fairly large populations and have governing boards and often provide a lot of services on campus like police and medical, and many large companies often have that campus set up too, and we have a history of company towns. It is quite likely a future with lots of O'Neill Cylinders in some solar system of quintillions of people would have ones that were pretty specialized like a university cylinder, or an amusement park cylinder, or a nature preserve cylinder. Rule by scholars at a university incidentally is a pedantocracy, and we also see an example of that in Asmo's Foundation series. This raises an interesting point because such habitats are rather naturally configured to be pretty autonomous and make for natural borders, so we tend to assume they'd be a subdivision of some larger state, which might in turn be part of a larger grouping, and so on, each level presumably handling certain governmental functions. However, you don't necessarily need all of your government functions coming from one chain. As an example, you might have a thousand Habitats who had a treaty to put their equivalent to a Supreme Court on one of them, and their equivalent to the Pentagon on another. But maybe a few hundred didn't want that particular defense group but did want the legal group, and instead contracted some mercenary group who had contracts with thousands of other Habs for defense issues. While scattered around the trillions of Habitats, any number of them got their communication service provided by some other group. Much the same as you might not have the same cell phone provider as your next door neighbor even though 40 years ago you pretty much had to have the same phone company, and nowadays would have the same electric company and water company. And many services of government might be entirely picked by an individual, not even a group, as opposed to our classic idea of any given piece of government being a monopoly. So too, revisiting our notion from before about how someone might have two distant residences and split their vote between them, someone could conceivably have dual or multi citizenship where they only got a partial vote in each one. This might be more likely because land and territory really aren't fixed in solar systems, especially in something like a Dyson Swarm. All those habitats will around, and only specific orbital paths would keep their neighbors the same, and just those fore and after them sharing that orbit. What's more, a space habitat is fundamentally a spaceship, it can just pick up, move, and join some other cluster. So you might have a million different empires all squished together, each having anywhere from a few million folks to a few trillion, and all at the same time they might be sharing territory in that one habitat might be getting its policing done only internally, get its traffic control and space police done by companies millions of others used, make use of a judicial system of some empire of a billion habitats that had other services available but which they opted not to have, and be part of a defense treaty with some rival empire, all of which had different policies, titles, vote allocation, governing systems, and so on and the people might be way more mobile too, moving as they please or living in entire virtual realms hosted online. Someone might easily be a citizen of a place that existed on no earthly map, or galactic one, because it was a simulated ward. Or a nation on Earth might have its classic Earth-bound states, plus various habitats and orbits that were states or were grouped into states, plus a colony on Mars and in 10,000 virtual realms. See the Virtual wards episode for more discussion of that. Folks often contemplate which sort of government we'll have in the future and for my part, I tend to suspect we'll have just about every kind imaginable and more variations of them at any given time than we've seen in our entire history to date, probably including those which are in absence or near absence of any traditional government, such as variations on anarchism or voluntarism. Especially if folks are free to come and go, both officially and in terms of ease of movement, You will probably see all sorts of systems, including those we'd think pretty unjust normally, potentially even including those which could only exist in fiction, like a majocracy, ruled by mages or wizards, in some virtual world. There are many other types we didn't cover, but there is one more I wanted to touch on, the Navalki, which is rulership of the sea, which would generally be where a group of islands, which were very big on ships and trade, essentially had the title of leadership in the hands of their admiral, or vice versa. And that might be a fairly parallel setup in space too, where it's likely to be large groups of space stations as islands, or space ships, or both as a space station is also a spaceship. This has an extra meaning too because a lot of interstellar colonies are likely to be founded by generation ships, see the Generation Ship series for details, where the crew of that ship was running the show for a long time and also might be founding many colonies. In that case, they might be prone to making all the colonies they settled sign some basic constitution and treaty, but there's another element too, time lag. Anybody running interstellar commerce doesn't really have a true port of home, not when a single mission can run decades or even longer, and it's not really practical to hoard interstellar votes. You can do interplanetary ones, time lag of a few hours for communication or even many days is hardly a new thing in administration, Even in this modern era of instant communication, correspondence back and forth is often by email, with multi-day correspondence chains as non-emergency decisions. However, as we looked at in Interstellar Empires, without FTL travel or communication, you are most likely to get loose-knit systems, who if they had any sort of federation, it would probably just be a few basic treaties of human rights, trade, currency, and extradition. This may even be the case with our own home solar system, In many ways the captain of a colony ship is a power unto themselves, because they control the ship and they can head off to anywhere on the galaxy with it, and found colonies too. But as we said earlier, every space habitat is also a spaceship, and any virtual world can be moved on a hard drive to a new server, and you can even move planets if you really want to. Moreover, it's quite possible a lot of space habitats would be configured to effectively be long-term dock for a spaceship equivalent of a houseboat, where folks just docked their house where they wanted and left when they wanted. We often say that comparing space to the ocean is not a good idea, popular though it is in science fiction, but in this regard it might be right. In the future, we might all be captains of our own ships, changing ports and fleets as we wanted. I'm not sure if this would be the best or most just form of government, but it has its appeal, to be master of your own fate and able to set whatever course you wanted and we'll be exploring that more next week, in Nomadic Space-Based Civilizations. I mentioned psychohistory today and how a lot of future governance will rely heavily on computers and statistics, as it already does. The value of a strong knowledge of statistics is useful in just about every area of life, and also a lot of fun. If you'd like to enhance your own knowledge of statistics, and have fun while you're at it, I'd recommend Brilliant's course Probability, Statistics, and Finance, which will take you from the basics to interesting topics like casino probabilities, qualitative finance, and cryptocurrency. And if you're interested in learning more astronomical concepts, or the math and physics behind them, I'd recommend Brilliant. The Universe is an immense and amazing place, and knowing the math and science behind it only makes it seem more amazing. And Brilliant's thought-provoking, fun, and interactive courses made them a great choice for learning, whether you're a student, a parent trying to enhance your kid's education, a professional brushing up on cutting edge topics, or someone who just wants to use this time to understand the world better, you should check out Brilliant. Try adding some learning structure to your day by setting a goal to improve yourself, and then work at that goal just a little bit every day. Brilliant makes that possible with interactive explorations, and a mobile app that you can take with you wherever you are. If you are naturally curious, want to build your problem-solving skills, or need to develop confidence in your analytical abilities, then get Brilliant Premium to learn something new. Brilliant's thought-provoking math, science, and computer science content helps guide you to mastery by taking complex concepts and breaking them up into bite-sized, understandable chunks. You'll start by having fun with their interactive explorations, over time you'll be amazed at what you can accomplish. If you'd like to learn more science, math, and computer science, and want to do it at your own pace, and from the comfort of your own home, go to brilliant.org slash and try it out for free. So we've got quite a schedule of episodes for September but we aren't quite done with August yet, and we'll finish up the month of August with our monthly livestream Q&A on Sunday, August 30th at 4pm Eastern Time, and you can join us then to get your questions answered. We'll then head into September and start the month out with a look at Space Nomads and Nomadic Fleet-Based Civilizations. The week after that we'll move on to part 2 of our new series, Becoming an Interplanetary Species, as we look at Colonizing Cislinar Space and the Lagrange Points. If you want to us when those and other episodes come out, make sure to subscribe the channel, and if you'd like to help support future episodes you can donate to us on Patreon or on our website IsaacArthur.net, which are linked in the episode description below, along with all of our various social media forums where you can get updates and chat with others about the concepts in the episodes and many other futuristic ideas. Until next time, thanks for watching and have a great week.